Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanorkas and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to another mini-series running over the 2022 Formula 1 summer break. It's another series of debates over the greatest racing drivers at various Grand Prix squads. But before we dive into our top 10 ranking on this episode, I'm coming first to our technical editor, Jake Boxall Leg. That's because in an unusual twist, it's him who has ranked the top 10 Arrows F1 drivers. And for a change, Kevin Turner is going to be the one analysing Jake's choices. So, JBL, why Arrows? Why why the need to uh, rank all of their drivers? Why Arrows indeed. For those of you in the audience who loves the more terrible Formula One teams or or slightly more challenged Formula One teams, um, you'll be well aware that it's 20 years since the Arrows Grand Prix squad unfortunately had to close its doors due to financial difficulties. Um, It had 24 years in Formula One uh, and you know, if we're counting Arrows and Footworks results together, it's the team that has raced the most times without scoring a Grand Prix victory uh, around uh, 382 Formula One entries, which is, you know, a a huge amount of races. Um, The team got very, very close, though, and it's really, really interesting history behind the team, uh, a number of different takeovers and um, Jackie Oliver selling the team and then buying it back at one point. Um, A number of very sort of storied drivers as well have have all raced for Arrow. So for me personally, I find that the, the history has seemed very fascinating and I think you know we're 20 years on now so I thought what what better time than to rank our favorite and best arrows f1 drivers uh, well just for any listeners that aren't aware why would we be adding the results of arrows and footwork together and yes this is an opportunity that I'm giving you to yet again after you explained it to me in the office earlier on today the history of the name footwork 
Yes. So uh, in 1991, I, I think I think the season before that, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, Arrow's got title sponsorship from Footwork. And then uh, Footwork is a Japanese uh, logistics company, or was rather. Um, and then its chairman, Wataru Hashi, uh, bought into the team, um, retitled it Footwork. But then Footwork ended its title sponsorship at the end of 1993. Uh, but Mr. Ohashi kept his shareholding within the team. And so they didn't bother changing the name back until uh, Tom Walkinshaw bought it in 1996. And he changed it back to Arrows. So this is why we're counting the two together. It's a continu- uh, continuation of the same team. Um it's one of those rare examples where maybe you would consider it a new entry had the footwork name carried on, but because it was arrows either side of that, I think it's it's worth grouping them together. Kevin Turner, different role for you on this podcast. Normally you're the one writing the top 10 lists, but now you're here, you're the one analysing, criticising, genuinely making JBL feel uncomfortable, which, to be honest, doesn't take much. Um, <laughs> how are you feeling about that different role today? Well, you'd think I'd be looking forward to it, really, having been on the receiving end of the grilling in the first series, and when we did the big teams, sort of the, the obvious, you know, most successful Formula 1 teams, but I, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what to, uh, how, how it's going to go, and kind of sort of trepidatious about it, but I think, I think JBL's done a, done a good job. But yeah, for this second series, we're looking at some of the older teams, or the teams that perhaps aren't quite so successful, and so we've divvied it up a bit. I, I've done um, I've done two or three of them. Uh, Jake's done one, and James Newbold's done one as well. And this will be our sort of second of the two series. And then for series three of the top tens, I'll come up with something else. Uh, and actually, I've already got a list of possible lists because um, some listeners have already fired me some ideas. So that's rather good. Um, we are straying dangerously close to the territory of what's number one in your top ten lists of your top ten lists. <laughs> but, but actually, you know, these, these ones I think are harder. The ones that are, are older or, or midfield, um, because everyone remembers champions and winners. And really, for, for the ones that we're looking at in the first series, you know, Ferrari, McLaren, um, you know, Red Bull, Williams, yeah, they had long periods of success. So you're talking, we would basically always pick in 10 drivers that at worst had won a few Grand Prix and at best had won multiple championships. And I think everyone, it's easier to find out information about those. Whereas some of these, as we'll get to in a minute, are drivers you have to go, oh yeah, I just need to go and have a bit more of a look about what they did. And yeah, but it's harder to dig the things out, which is why I've brought in some some experts of the mediocre to uh, to go through the research because I knew that uh, JBL was already working on some arrows research anyway. Yeah, you've you've made quite the uh, quite the career of writing about uh, underwhelming Formula One teams, haven't you, JBL? You know, um, gotta gotta stick with your own kind. <laughs> oh, harsh, harsh, I would say on yourself. Oh, it's too early for that. Leave that to us for later on. Also, just quickly, Kev, you're glossing over the fact that uh, Red Bull haven't had 10 Formula 1 drivers, so you had to look to the Toro Rosso list to even make up. Yes, the Red Bull one perhaps wasn't a good example. That one did have to be stretched a bit wide. But in terms of success, there was an obvious sort of top six, wasn't there, that filled our first series. And then this one, second series, is going to be a a little bit more, could be a little bit more esoteric, but hopefully it'll be just as interesting. Absolutely. Now, well, as before rather quickly before we get into Jake's list here's a reminder just how we arrange these episodes for the listeners for each entry I'll introduce it and then JBL you're going to explain which driver is in which slot and why and in this case Kev for a nice change you're going to examine Jake's reasoning and logic behind the various positions and as we go through we'll no doubt assess the drivers that didn't quite make the cut so starting off shockingly in a top 10 list with number 10 it's Christian Fittipaldi Uh, his arrows slash footwork years as JBL's got it in his notes here just 1994, 16 starts, scored six points. JBL, 
Why is Fittipaldi at number 10? Uh, I think it was uh, it was a very very difficult number ten uh, to to choose. As you mentioned, there are there are some uh, honourable mentions, uh, and I think the biggest one on the list in particular that I really uh, laboured over was picking between Christian Fittipaldi and Michele Alberato. Um, Alberato, he had one good year with footwork essentially, but that was the only year in which the car was actually any good um he you know drove in 1992 and he scored quite a few good points but i think chris fittipaldi kind of edges this one because um you know he 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 kind of come into footwork having done some heroics with with minardi um and then had a slight falling out with pierluigi martini after his very very violent backflip in uh, at monza um but he set an immediate impression um the FA15 that year was a very, very good car, penned on a very, very tight budget. As I said at the top of the show, they no longer had the footwork backing. And so they were relying on drivers to bring in a little bit of money, um, trying to get sort of race by race deals in, as was uh, the style in the 1990s. Um, so it was a car penned on a very, very tight budget. But Fittipaldi acquitted himself really, really well. And... Um, you know, he was out-qualified by Gianni Morbidelli in the season opener, but Fittipaldi came back at him in the next race. And he came fourth at the Pacific Grand Prix, Aida. Uh, Aida being a, a, a quite a tough, technical, very, very small circuit. So it's, it's quite a, a difficult place to kind of perform at as, as a, with, a, with a new car, I think. Um, and then the footworks were were very very good at Monaco as well. It seemed to sort of have the the run of the place. Fittipaldi beat Morbidelli again. Um, Fittipaldi could have scored points at the Canadian Grand Prix, and he got sixth. But the car was uh, he was disqualified because the car was underweight. But then the car started to get worse throughout the season because um, in 1994, obviously there was the Senna crash and the Ratzenberger crash at Imola. A load of safety changes were being made, and that just took away all of the car's competitive edge. Um, but basically, to, to to cut a very long story short, uh, I think Fittipaldi, you know deserves to be in this top 10 list I think when you consider the context of his move to the team when you consider the context of the team not having the funds that it, it once did uh, to get six points that year was a really really you know a really big feat um, and the fact that you know he he left F1 afterwards you kind of think how good could he have been in Formula 1 if he'd been in a semi-decent car um, so I think certainly is worthy of worthy of notes for the top ten. I'm certainly happy with him being ahead of Alberetto. I think you can also factor in their, where they were in their careers at that point because Alberetto was a Grand Prix winner so you'd expect more really when you're coming into you know coming into a midfield team providing that they're motivated um, whereas Fittipaldi didn't have that experience so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pretty happy with that. I, I, the name I'd want to throw in is the potential other person in the 10th slot, because we've talked about this in the first series, the 10th slot's always one of the hardest ones, it's because it's, it's who you're leaving out. And I'd say Pedro de la Rosa. A couple of reasons there. One, similarly inexperienced, in fact, a rookie with Arrows in 99 and 2000, compared favourably to another driver when they were in the same team at Arrows, who's later on the list, I don't want to spoil it for, for, for <laughs> the listeners, but uh, I think compared favourably, did score only three points. So he's behind Fittipaldi on, on, on that. But I think probably during a 
maybe less competitive for arrows or maybe more competitive for a Formula One, whichever way around you want to put it. So for me, I'm, I'm sort of, oh, is it Fittipaldi, is it De La Rosa? I mean, how close did De La Rosa make it to getting into your list? I, th- I think very, very close, certainly. Um, but maybe if he'd had one more season where he was able to kind of perform heroics to the level that, that Fittipaldi was able to in his one year... Um, he might compare a little bit more favourably. Uh, I suppose it is biased because De La Rosa had to deal with more uncompetitive cars. But equally, I think when you consider his results in 2000, um, that he was only able to get two points all year, despite the fact that he was by far the better arrows driver in qualifying. It just shows that, although very, very quick, there just wasn't that taking the opportunity let's say on a on a a really good day and whether that was down to him whether that was down to arrow sort of still recovering slightly from a miserable 1999 um could be a little bit of both but i think there were opportunities there for de la rosa to be on the list and just ultimately you know he, he could have 22 years ago considered that when he was falling off the road or whatever JBL, any other drivers that didn't just make didn't just make the cut? I know there's no Heinz Harold Frenzel, nor, controversially, Takuma Sato, Yuji Ide, or Frank Montangi, who of course raced the final arrows when it was brought back into life at Super Aguri in two thousand and six. We're not counting that. Oh, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> Even though it was the same car. Um yeah, the, I'm sure there is a loophole to be made there for uh, you know, the same loophole that made it a, a different car for a different constructor but uh no, you outlined your position at the start exactly Three years since arrows uh, yeah exactly one, so no exactly right. so You're safe on that criteria i think alex is just trying to throw in curveballs for the hell of it at number nine it's gianni morbidelli who drove arrows during its footwork years in 1994 and 1995 made 26 starts for the team and took eight points why is he number nine jbl why is he number nine well you could say that if it's probably beat him, surely he should be number 10. But uh, Morbidelli does have an extra year to go on. And I think there were more heroics in that year. Um, when you consider in 90, if you're 1994, uh, 1994, they were slightly running out of money. 1995 was even worse for the team. Um which affected Morbidelli more than others. When Fittipaldi left, they brought in Taki Inoue. Um he was bringing in quite a lot of money from the Unimat Corporation in Japan. And uh, if there's anything that you can say about Taki Inoue is that he, uh, it wasn't for a want of trying, let's say. He had a good go at Formula One. He got run over by a safety car. He got run over by a course car in Monaco as well. Fantastic sense of humour as well. Self-proclaimed worst F1 driver ever, even though I don't think he was. But uh. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, he's, he's, but, you know, he's trying to claim accolades for, for the worst, weren't you? As you say, he certainly wasn't. Um, but Inoue wasn't going to be the one that was scoring points for the team. That was kind of Morbidelli's job. And Inoue was just basically keeping the team ticking over with his cash. Um, Morbidelli was pretty ubiquitous in the midfield of uh, the first few rounds of 1995. Um, three seconds faster in qualifying in the opening th- three rounds of the season than Inoue on average. Um, but he couldn't get onto the score sheet until Montreal. Um, he was... You know, he did score in a traditional Canadian Grand Prix, um, but he, you know, he kept guys like Olivier Panis and Mick Sala, who were in better cars and probably more, let's say, accomplished drivers in Formula One throughout their careers out of the top six. So that was a, a really good result. But then after Manicure, Morbidelli was benched for seven races because 
footwork had completely run out of money. They needed Max Pappas to come in because Pappas was bringing in cash. Um, the problem was that it was a massive downgrade. Um, Pappas was struggling to beat Inoue uh, at that time. Um, and, you know, you can say that the car was new to him, that kind of thing. But when you consider the the lack of pace, let's say, that Inoue showed over the year, it was a, a real downgrade. Um and so at that point, Jackie Oliver said, to hell with the money, we might get more from from prize money if Morbidelli's in the car. Um, and ultimately, that was proven right because he got third uh, at Adelaide. Obviously, it was a, that was a mad race and Damon Hill lapped uh, you know, all of the finishers that were left. He was two laps up on everybody else. But... You know, it was a, a fantastic result for Morbidelli. And I think, you know, getting a podium in an arrows when there is no money in the team, that's, you know, context or not, a really good result. And I think that's why he gets number nine. Yeah, I've got no no argument with that at all. I think also the fact that he's been brought back, like that's a great, because we all talked about the impact on the team, what it means to the team. Like for someone to make that choice to bring someone back, I think that's, that's a real big plus. And I think we'll come across this a little bit further on the list as well, as it's always balancing impact with longevity. And I think that obviously Morbidelli has the extra season over fit or three quarters of two thirds of season over, over, over Fittipaldi. So I'm pretty, pretty happy with him in ninth. Also, he makes me think of the original Formula One game on the Sony PlayStation. And yes. going in 15th place, Johnny Morbidelli. <laughs> I played this recently. Um, awesome game. Well, I play I play it semi regularly, um, purely just to hear Murray Walker's excitement. What every time you pick Gabrielli Tarquini, it's Tarquini. It's phenomenal. Great game. If nobody at home, okay, you can probably get it for a couple of quid down the local game store. If you've got a PS One or don't want to you know promote the use of emulators or anything, but you know do what you got to do. Get the original Formula One game and. Have a have a the great only time. issue with it, of course, is if you played full length Grand Prix, which I did as a teenager, like full length season, you've got to do it. Is that on the original Formula One game, as opposed to F197, which came later, is that you get to half distance and half the field would stop every lap. So that would be half the field you'd definitely beat because they'd be, <laughs> every lap would be an in or out lap, it'd be like a 2022 Ferrari F1 strategy. Don't play that mode. Excellent, excellent. Just a quick uh, footnote on uh, Morbidelli. I met him in 2015 at the TCR International racing around at Monza. Thoroughly nice man, can confirm. Oh, we like that. Even even, even better that he's at number nine then. <laughs> Moving on to number eight, it's Jos Verstappen, raced for Arrows slash footwork in two stints, 1996, the last year of the footwork arrangement, and then in 2000 and the 2001 season. Ended up starting 50 races for the team and scored seven points. JBL, why is the, well, the much less famous Verstappen, why is he at number eight? Uh, well, first of all, his biggest achievement was giving birth to Max, probably. Um, I don't think that would have been Jos that did that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, I had uh, Verstappen actually higher up this list um, when I was first writing it. Because um, I considered his 2000 season, got five points, really, really strong in the races in particular. His first season with the team in 1996, this was the first season when it was still technically footwork on the entry list at this point, but Tom Walkinshaw had already bought it. Um, and so the FA 17 that year, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a particularly pretty car, um, to be honest with you. It was kind of that awkward 1996 aesthetic that it was very, very similar to Ferrari and it looked it like it kind of had an armchair around the cockpit with the, the cockpit side regulation. It wasn't the best car and um, it wasn't particularly, you know, 
good performer. Um, Verstappen was able to qualify it in the midfield, but Ricardo Rosset in the other car, he was, you know, pretty much stuck to the back. Um, very early on, Walkinshaw decided, you know, I'm not going to invest my money into this car. I'm going to put all of the eggs that, you know, I'm, I'm investing into this team into the 1997 basket. So Verstappen was kind of... Ha- left to make do with that car he was able to get it into the midfield during qualifying in the early part of the season out qualified both mclarens in argentina to take seventh on the grid and uh he, he scored sixth uh beating coulthard and panis in that race but yeah walking children decided to invest in 1997 car kind of depreciated over the season that was kind of it for verstappen for the team for you know four years uh, he joined tyrrell then rosset came back into the the picture for that team because BAT didn't want to basically underwrite a car that was, you know, it wasn't going to be their BAR project. Did a half season with Stewart in 1998 when Magnussen was kicked out, threw his lot in with Honda's abortive F1 project, and then Walkinshaw brought him back to Arrows for 2000. Um, and that car was good that year. That It was very, very quick in a straight line. Uh, it was designed by the uh, Iranian designer Ekbal Hamadi, uh, who basically took these new Supertech engines because they binned off the Arrows engine project, found a load of pace from it. Wasn't particularly good at circuits like Monaco and that kind of thing, but at Belgium, at Imola, at, uh, not Imola, sorry, Monza, um, Hockenheim, really, really good. But as, as we mentioned earlier, um, De La Rosa was far better in qualifying. I think he had Verstappen beaten 12 to 5 in qualifying. Um, but Verstappen was 5 to 2 up in points. Um, points don't tell the whole story, of course. But Verstappen just made the most of those opportunities. Um, it probably didn't help that De La Rosa was involved in a massive crash at the start of Monza that Verstappen was able to finish fourth at. Um and then there's 2001 to go on as well. Can't really compare the teammates because Enrique Benaldi in the other car wasn't stellar at all. Um, but he was such a sort of fixture at the start of races, particularly towards the front, because that A22 had such a small fuel tank that the, the car was so light at the start of the races compared to everything else. So Verstappen would just get a load of places up at the start, um, be around p5 p6 and then when pit stops and stuff started to come in then he'd start to fall back but you know it was a good way to probably get the car on the telly wasn't it yeah i i think i'd probably have him a place or maybe that's a bit romantic but i'd probably have him a place higher because of those sorts of performances (laughs) um and obviously i've already said that i like the la rosa possibly in the list which means i can then bump yours a bit higher as well to keep the gap um, so I'd perhaps have him, I'd perhaps have him seventh. Um, I take the point. Obviously, De La Rosa was quick in qualifying, but it was usually Verstappen doing the stuff in the races. And it's kind of fun to see someone in a midfield car getting up there. I know there were fuel reasons and all the rest of it, but there was some quite. You know, he was a good race. I think it's easy to forget that he was pretty highly rated at one time. Okay, the time at Benetton, you know, that was that was poor timing for him, um, and his career didn't go the way it probably should have done. And I suspect that he's used a lot of that knowledge to help, you know, help. Max get to where he needed to be, you know, very early. So yeah, I, I'd, I'd be tempted to have Jos a bit, but yeah, he was he was a bit flawed. We'll see one the other heroic moment or not. It'll be at Brazil hitting Montara up the backside. So <laughs> um, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't all fantastic, but um, yeah, he, he did bring a certain something to the grid at times. I think when you look at that career, it is properly 
promise unfulfilled and you can probably say that for one of the other second generation drivers on the grid as well in uh kevin magnuson because obviously his father jan uh so so good in british f3 in 94 and then came to formula one and just was massively disappointing um verstappen great uh, you know did a pretty solid job at benetton in his first year it must be said but i think his career pretty much stalled out straight after that getting farmed out to Simtech with a bunch of Benetton gearboxes um, for 95. Probably didn't really help him, and he was kind of scrabbling around forever after. Um, part, part of the reason why I brought Verstappen down a few places, actually, was because I didn't have De La Rosa on the list. And so I thought, well, it's probably a bit bad having Jos Verstappen around 6th or 5th or 6th when De La Rosa, a driver rematched, isn't on the list. So it was a bit of an internal dilemma at times to, to get this together. As you said, it would be at the, the top of the, the podcast. Well, let's move on to the drivers that uh, that benefited from Jos Verstappen being chucked down a few places. At number seven, we've got Mark Sura, drove for Arrows again in two different stints, 1982 to 1984, and again in 1986. That meant he ended up starting 47 races for the team and scored eight points. JBL, why is he at number seven? This was a driver that definitely did benefit, um, but I had the benefit of listening to his very, very recent F1 Beyond the Grid episode with Tom Clarkson, which is a a very interesting insight into his Formula One career. Um, A driver that was really highly rated, uh, particularly by German manufacturers. So he was part of BMW's junior squad in the 1970s. So, um, you know, he was one of Jochen Nierpasch's protégés if you like and then he'd later do the same thing um with mercedes in the, the late 80s with venlinger and schumacher and heinz harold Frentzen. um sura joined formula one with uh, with enzyme at the end of 1979 not very competitive joined ats for 1980 not very competitive went back to enzyme again and then he w- was brought into arrows's radar for 82 um now at ATS, he'd broken his legs at Kyle Army in 1980. In 1982, Sura went testing at Kyle Army and he broke his legs again. Um, so that forced him to overcome quite a lot of limitations when it came to driving the car. He wasn't ever really massively successful in qualifying. Um, if you look at his averages, if you look at his grid positions, he's well down the midfield, I think, pretty much everywhere you go. But the longer the race went on, the more it seemed to come to Sura. And he took a number of points. In days where reliability wasn't particularly good, he seemed to keep the car running. He seemed to have this really good mechanical sympathy. And he was able to get the car, you know, towards the end of the race. Um, So, for example, uh, in a very sort of uh, attrition hit, Canadian Grand Prix in 1982 is able to get fifth place and get some you know good points for the team off the board kicked off 1983 in really good form so he took four points in the opening three races but in both seasons um Arrows just kind of didn't have the money to develop relative to the other teams on the grid um and and, and that was partly because of uh in 1983 as well, Goodyear introducing a new construction of tyre to fit the turbo cars, and so the unnaturally aspirated arrows wasn't really benefited from that. Um, and then Sura's sort of career was hindered, firstly, by getting beaten by uh, another driver that we have on this list uh, in the next position, actually, uh, in 1984. Um, this was when Arrows introduced its turbo BMW-powered car, and Sura just didn't get on with it at all. 
was drafted into Brabham for 1985, um, earned a reprieve with Arrows for 1986, but then he had a, a rally crash fight, fight, so five races into the Formula One season. Cyril went and did a rally, had a huge crash. It claimed the life of his co-driver, uh, Michel Weider, which left Cyril with massive injuries and he just never got back into Formula One. So it was a real case of kind of, I guess what could have been in Formula One. He never really, when he was at his peak in Formula One, he'd broken his legs twice. Um, you do kind of wonder what, where he could have been had that not happened and had he been able to sort of extract a little bit more from the, uh, the arrows when he was there. I think that's fair enough, but I think we need to go on what they did achieve yeah, what drivers did actually achieve rather than what they could have done. Otherwise, you know, we'd be into <laughs> Stefan Beloff being the greatest Tyrrell driver or whatever, which is another list I'm doing, and Beloff isn't number one, in case you're wondering. Um, <laughs> so I, I would swap them, swap Sue and Verstappen around almost for the same reasons that you said you put him there, is because, yeah, I think it was a time when cars were unreliable, and he didn't really have the. I don't think he really had the, the raw pace. You know, he's a little bit disappointing in Formula One for the reasons that JBL's just described. Um, but, you know, he was quite a rated guy when he was coming up. And he's another unfulfilled talent on this list, really. Perhaps, that's, perhaps that says something more about Arrows. Um, but, yeah, I would, I would just swap them around. I mean, 47 races, 8 points versus Verstappen's 50 races and 7 points. Oh, it's very much much. Much much. Yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to be contrary and swap them around. Excellent. That's what we like on uh, on these podcasts. A little bit of uh, contrarianism. Is that if that's a word? Who knows? Who cares? Anyway, right. Number six. We've got Thierry Bootsen. He drove arrows between 1983 and 1986, starting 57 races and scoring 16 points. JBL, why is he at number six? Bootsen was the driver that uh, partnered Sura in 1983 and 1984. He joined midway through 1983. Didn't score any points, but he started matching Sura's pace pretty sort of off the map. Earned an extended deal for 1984. Um, actually paid by the team this time. Uh, he was paying for the the 83 seat. Um, kicked off the year with six in Brazil, fifth Imola, and then uh, Arrow switched from the Cosworth-powered A6 to a BMW Turbo A7, which was rubbish. Uh, <laughs> the car was played by unreliability. The engine was played by unreliability massive horsepower in that BMW turbo engine, but just, it you know, it, it might hang on to the end of the race. It might not. And for Arrows, most of the time it didn't. Um, but Bootsen got points in it, actually. Um, he got a fifth in Austria. Sarah did get sick that race. Uh, but I think on balance, Arrows looked at Bootsen and said, this is the guy that we want to continue with. Gerhard Berger came in and Bootsen pretty easily had the measure of him um out qualified him 12 to 4 outscored him by 11 to 3 across the season um boots and getting second at imola um it, it was just kind of at that point where arrows then sort of started to hit a little bit of a difficult time um sura returned to partner boots in 86 um but that year in '86, Arrows had a bit of a, a bit of a stinker, and um, only scored one point through neither Boots and Osura. But Christian Danner came in for half a season and scored a point. Um, but it was a bit of a miserable way for Boots and to end because it had started kind of so promisingly. '85 in particular was a really really good year, um, and it sort of put properly put him on front running teams' radars. So I think out of that, 
rather than 86. That's what got him the Benetton drive later joining Williams and then uh, having a terrible, terrible time with Ligier. So I think that's probably on balance why Bootsen is there. Um, one of those drivers that you would never consider a real front runner, but he was there to do a job and he, he did that job nine times out of 10, I think. Can we introduce the person in fifth place as well? Because I... I'm I'm more, much more adamant about this swap, I would say. Absolutely. Well, at number five, JBL's got Jochen Mass, drove for Arrows between 1979 and 1980, drove a couple of the most famous Arrows cars, I think. Uh, started 24 races, scored seven points. But Kev, I'm guessing... Uh, yeah, why, Descent in the ranks. Yeah, I, I think if you look at... Um, going, so everything that JBL said about Bootsen, I think, was fair, but I think it's quite key that he... he so he beats Gerhard Berger, right, who I think... I think if you say well, Berger and Ricardo Patrese are probably two of the best number twos in the last few decades. I mean, what's the number two, etc. depends on who's at the team, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, Berger and Patrese are both established Grand Prix winners. And you'd now probably have them in F1 terms, you'd have them both ahead of Bootsen and Mass in a in list of great drivers. And I think that when they're at Arrows, you know, Bootsen sees off Berger admittedly with, you know, Berger's you know, rookie, basically. Um, but it's not like Bootsen's got years of experience behind him. And then Mass, who is a very experienced driver, is kind of thrashed by Patrese, really. Uh, in terms of pace, he's, uh, you know, he's quite, quite a long way behind. I don't think Mass has really delivered particularly during his F1 career. He's a great sports car driver. In fact, both Bootsen and Mass course won sports car races. Um, but for me, Mass is a sports car driver and who was tucked up by his younger teammate, whereas Bootsen, Bootsen wasn't. So I, I would... I would have uh, I'd have Bootsen in my in my top five and and not Mass, but JBL hasn't had an opportunity to talk about Jochen Mass yet, so I should throw to him now. Well, I I put Mass there on you know he was as you say you know Patrese did have him beat, but there were were plenty of occasions where Mass had Patrese beat. I think the dynamic switched particularly because when the A two came in and. If there's anything that you can say about the Arrows A2, it was interesting looking. Pretty distinctive looking car. Oh, yeah. yeah I think Farstein delivery as well, which was cool. I think, you know, when you're, I think when you're watching the highlights of, what, Dijon 1979, <laughs> you can see it in the background on the straight. There's, you know, you've got, you've got uh, the Ferrari and the Renault fighting, and then you've got this very low-slung, squat, gold bullet kind of thing just sort of lurking in the background i think it's one of those rare occasions where a car looked right but was completely wrong yeah (laughs) and it was it was really awful um i think arrows had kind of worked out how to get a lot of downforce from ground effects but hadn't really worked out what that ground effects would do to the rest of the car and so i think they were pinning their hopes on creating loads of downforce and not really realizing that it would really drastically change the handling of a car um but Mass was able to get points out of that thing. Um, no, it was you know it was two points, but it was still something. Um, attritional results, sure. Um, but I think when you consider the time, you do have to largely put the car. You know, you had to get the car to the finish, and you had to adapt and chop and change your driving style. I thought I think Mass had the experience to to do that i think he was able to sort of listen to uh, where the car was at the time and uh, and get it to the end um did have a decent run in 1980 with the a3 um but yeah then that was that was that was uh mass largely calling time on f1 and 
departed at the end of the year for for Porsche. But I think it it was wasn't as as, as bad as Kev suggested. I think you know he did give Petrazzi a good a good run for his money for sure. Well, talking about the the Vorsteiner livery that was on some of those arrows that Mass raced, have you either of you ever had one of those beers? Yes. Kev's just looking at long to beers. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I might have been a long time ago, I think. Like I can't that. remember it, what I thought. I it. was very lucky to be given one by the Audi Formula E team as I waited to speak to Alan McNish after the Berlin e in 2019. Drinking on the job, Alex. And I took it home because it was warm, so I had to put it in the fridge at the hotel and I finished it, had it when I uh, finished all my work and it was absolutely delicious. Uh, believe it or not, we are not being paid by Vorsteiner to advertise their products. Number four on JBL's list, Eddie Cheever, drove for Arrows between 1987 and 1989, started 46 races and scored 20 points. JBL, why is Cheever at number four? So let's go into the, uh, I'll talk a little bit about Arrows at the time. Because uh, we've talked about 86, uh, Sura out of the car, Bootson's gone at this point. Uh, and Arrows is kind of about to start a sort of new era. Um Everything was so bad in, in 86 that Dave Wass, its longtime technical director and one of the team's founders, walked out on the team. And so Ross Braun, uh, a young Ross Braun, came in to oversee the design of um, the A10 that was used for 1987. And Eddie Cheever and Derek Warwick came in to drive the cars. Um, in the first year, you know, Warwick had probably the edge in qualifying, but Cheever was just able to get more out of the car in races. Um, Warwick didn't get off the sort of the uh, off the mark until Silverstone that year. Um, by then, Cheever had already got fourth in Belgium and sixth in Detroit, um, and you know outscored him in the first year. Um, and they were, I think, you'd have to say on balance, they were pretty, for the most part, pretty evenly matched. I think Warwick just, you know, found, uh, as the seasons went on, when they were together, Warwick just found more of an, more of an edge. In the 88, last the turbo era, Cheever just didn't quite hit the heights that, that Warwick was able to. Although Warwick was probably the more consistent of the two, Cheever had the sort of bigger heights. It was kind of like the the latter days of uh, Grosjean and Magnussen at Haas, where Magnussen was in the you know fifth and sixth pretty much every race, and Grosjean was had the lower lows but the higher highs, and he was doing crazy things in qualifying every now and again. But when it came to '89, their last season together, that was the switch to the naturally aspirated uh, A11. Um, a car that Warwick really, really enjoyed. Uh, he talks about it very, very fondly. Um, but Cheever was really poor in qualifying that year. Um, I think it was 15 to 1, 16 to 1 between, uh, 15, must have been 15 to 1 between them. Um, and then Martin Donnelly came in for France when Warwick was out with a back injury and uh, Donnelly out qualified Cheever as well. It was uh, how poor his year was. But on balance, um, they were reasonably evenly matched. It was a good uh, driver pairing. Um, and, you know, Cheever scored 20 points, did a, a very, very good job. Um, and, you know, that was the end of his formula time in Formula One, but he sort of he ended on a decent note. So I think it was a sort of pretty, for me, slam dunk fourth place. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the top four people on this list almost picked themselves. And I think that Cheever is an island of fourth because ultimately... Derek did have the... Because they were rivals and teammates in both uh, Group C, Jaguar, of course, and uh, uh, and at um, Arrows in Formula One. 
uh, and sometimes they got on and sometimes they didn't. Uh, uh, Derek's very interesting to talk to about that. But ultimately, Eddie wasn't quite as good as Derek, I think, basically. You know, Derek edges that that particular battle and makes it into the top three on this list. I think Eddie has to be clear of everyone else we've talked about. So this is one of the most nailed-on positions in the series that we've had, I think. So, yes, I wholeheartedly agree with Eddie Cheever in fourth. Moving on from a fairly simple fourth place decision, um, we're going to come on to a little bit of a debate. I suspect we're going to be having for spots number three and two. So we're going to introduce them at the same time. And then as uh, I'm already of the understanding, number one, I think is fair, fairly uh, fairly sure to draw some agreement between Kevin JBL. So let's cover number uh, drivers at number three and two. At number three, the only world champion on this list, it's Damon Hill. Drove arrows for just that sole season, famously in 1997, after losing his drive at Williams. Started 16 races, scored seven points nearly winning the 97 Hungarian Grand Prix and at number two we've got Derek Warwick drove for Arrows uh, in a stint between 1987 and 1989 and then again when it was footwork in 1993 he therefore started 63 races for the squad uh, under both its guises scored 31 points so JBL you've got Derek Warwick at two and Damon Hill at three why are they in that order and then we'll come and see if Kev agrees this was something that I genuinely changed very, very last minute. And I was filing this to Mr. Turner to my left. I had to, I had a change of heart. And the reason for that is because Hills 1997, that hungry race, it's, it's kind of his real flagship result that year. But when you consider, I guess, the context around it, the Bridgestone tyres were clearly the best tyres on the day, especially for the conditions. Everything was just this kind of perfect storm of, being there for for Hill and it was also a race where the arrows itself mechanically was quite good it just wasn't very quick um equally the Yamaha engine it was you know it had drivability but it just wasn't the most powerful at Hungary those that deficit isn't so much um it's not going to be you know a, a situation where you're losing a ton of time because you haven't got the downforce. You haven't, sorry, yeah, you haven't got the the speed or you haven't got the power. Um, if you're mechanically quite good, you've got a decent amount of downforce and decent amount of traction, then you're, you're you're pretty good. And that's what he had on that day. The rest of the season, it was difficult for Hill, especially at the start. Um, did nearly nearly didn't qualify for the season opener. Didn't start the season opener because he had a stuck throttle. Um, did score a point, uh, Silverstone was sixth, uh, but it was a slightly lucky sixth. Um, and then he had his day in the sun at Hungary. It was getting better towards the end of the season. He qualified fourth at Hareth in that amazing three-way pole battle where France and Schumacher and Villeneuve set exactly the same time. Hill didn't set exactly the same time and therefore was just behind them. Um... But then gearbox failure midway through that race that ended his shot at a final hurrah of points. It's a fantastic story, and it's great to discuss how many, t- you know, uh, ad infinitum, Damon Hill almost won a race for Arrows. But let's not forget that Derek Warwick almost won a race for Footwork. Um, would have been in 1989. As I said, the, the, the A11, Warwick was a massive fan of that car, and he thinks that it genuinely should have got more points, should have got more podiums. It just wasn't very reliable. Um, and he nearly won in Brazil. He was eighth on the grid. He was running third and he was really, really catching Alain Prost for second of that race. So if you look at the timing traces, he's reeling Prost in at a vast rate of knots. Then he comes into the pits 
while he's running third and he has a pit stop which uh, I spoke to, to to Derek recently and he said that it was an absolutely diabolical pit stop he lost a ton of time and it dropped into fifth um, the overall pit stop time loss was smaller than that than, than his gap to Nigel Mansell at the end of the race and so if you consider that you know he was able to catch and pass these guys you know he would have caught and passed Alan Prost had his pit stop and theoretically could have caught and passed Nigel Mansell and that would have been a win um that was where he was at with that car and I think if you equate those two moments as kind of wins that could have been um and then you look at the rest of the results around that I think Warwick's results are just more impressive overall as I said you know he was a good match for Cheever but he was he was better he was a consistent point scorer and I just think on balance for me that swings it I mean, that all makes perfect sense. I think it is really close. I think these are two drivers that you know, or two, two, two guys, we've been fortunate enough to speak to them many times. You, you, yeah, they're, they're both great guys and you can see why they're very successful. And have them on the podcast, both of them. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, um, but the reason that... Um, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Like Derek Warwick's longevity, he definitely gets the tick box there. But I think one of the criteria we've used is is impact. And I think there's two really strong things in Damon's favour on this. The first is the one that Karun Chandok raised in the first series when arguing for Nelson Piquet being higher up the Williams list, which I hadn't thought of, which was that was the first time they'd attracted a world champion to the team. And that was a big deal for them. And for, okay, so, you know, the whole situation with Damon at Williams and the contract situation, you know, has been over many times. But for him to go to, to Arrows, that was a major deal for a, a midfield back-end team. And it got, it was, a, you know, it was in the, all over the press. It was a big, big deal for the team. And it was obviously part of Tom Walkershaw going, we're going to be a, a big thing. Um, okay, so ultimately it didn't work out. But the second part of the impact is... I don't think there are many points in history where a team starts at 5.4 seconds off pole at the first race and finishes at the last race 58 thousandths of a second off pole. And actually, I think there was a spinner in front of Damon on his last flying lap. He would have been on pole ahead of those three tied cars. So you go from a car that struggled to qualify to potentially out-qualifying the Williams and Fries backing out for the championship. Now, OK, that's not going to be down to just one drop, one person. But we know that Damon Hill was a fantastic development driver. He could drive a team along. Adrian knew he, one of the reasons he left Williams was because he was cross that Damon had been kicked out. So I think his impact in the team and uh, you know to drive drive it all forward and make progress uh, is what is what just about gets him ahead of of Derek for me on this list. Even though he was only there for the one season. But I agree, it's very... I'm not surprised that you were still... Ch- I know that well. Copy-paste. Oh, no, undo. Copy-paste, undo. Uh, but, yeah, I think just just not just because of Hungary, but just because of the overall impact on the team. Like suddenly, people knew what Aras Yamaha was uh, in a way that I don't think Derek had quite that same impact at uh, Arrows when he was there. I think I'm going to make a judgment call and say I agree with JBL from the cold, hard stats. But there we go. Obviously, you have more races to do it. Uh, well, sorry, what I would say is uh, I'm still sticking with with my order for this. Um, one thing that I guess does kind of sour it for Warwick a little bit is that just that one 1993 season with footwork, which we've not mentioned. Um, he did come back to the team two years later. So he'd done, uh, or oh, sorry, three years later. Um, so he'd spent time with Jackie and Peugeot in World Sports Car Championship. Um 
and he was toying with an idea of coming back to to, to Formula One. Uh, he was exploring options out in the US. So he was testing uh, Penske IndyCar. He had Eddie Jordan in contact with him saying, you know, I want Derek Warwick in my Jordan. Um, and uh, Jackie Oliver got in contact and said, uh, where are you at now? And uh, Derek says, well, you know, Eddie Jordan's offered me a potential drive. And Jackie says, well, you know, we know what we know what Eddie's like. Um, I'm sure the car's not all that. Won't you come to us? Um, you know, footwork was kind of back on the up after a dreadful Porsche year. Had the Mugen Honda engines, which was, you know, perfectly serviceable. 1993 car was quite pretty i think it was quite a nice looking car um i know speed doesn't equate with nice uh, nice looks but still i think it was uh, it was a pretty cool car but the problem was when warwick went there he clashed with chief designer alan jenkins jenkins kind of resented him a little bit for replacing alberta team um warwick came in and you know he was kind of jackie oliver's driver um and they just clashed. And I think Warwick, uh, he, he said to me recently, um, if I said something was red, Jack, uh, Alan Jenkins would say it was blue. That was kind of their their antipathy towards each other. Um, and that ultimately, you know, Warwick was, I think he was 39 at that point. Um, and he sort of thought, well, if this is as good as it's going to get, you know, that's kind of my time in F1 over. Um, it, was a, it was kind of a sour year. You know, we scored four points that year. Um, didn't, you know, he was with Aguri Suzuki who didn't really match up to him at any point. Um, but still, I think on balance that 87 to 89 period, it just for me, it's just, uh, it, it brings him over the line. Well, just to, just to give a plug to a future top 10 list, I am doing a top 10 best F1 drivers who didn't win a world championship Grand Prix and, and, and Derek will definitely be on it. So, uh, yeah, no, it's not, nothing. It's, it is, it is nip and tuck. It's, it's impact versus, versus record really and longevity, isn't it? I look forward to, to that podcast in the future, but, uh, let's move on to the number one pick, which I'm guessing will be a slightly shorter segment. I think that's, uh, that's fairly clear. They're in agreement in the room. And number one, it's Ricardo Patrese, drove for Arrows between 1978 and 1981, started 57 races, scored 30 points. So if it's so clear, why is number one JBL? Please do explain. Uh, it's it's interesting. It shows a lot about Arrow's trajectory in F1 that their first driver was their best driver. Um, they kicked off Formula One. You know, it was a really bright start. And it was a bright start because uh, basically they just lifted to the design of another car and, you know, built it themselves. Um, I think Jackie Oliver recently said in F1, F1 Beyond the Grid that Tony Southgate had used some of the designs from the shadow uh for the uh, the shadow dn9 for the arrows fa1 um but regardless you know ricardo patrese came in um he's sort of relatively unproven in formula one at that point um he'd, he'd raced an italian f3 uh he was a driver of some repute but once he got his hands on that arrow it seemed to be really benign in the handling department really really good for a rookie driver and uh, he he almost won Arrow's second race. Um, so Arrow's missed the Argentina opener, went to Brazil, and then Kyle Army, which was the third round, Patrese qualified seventh, got his Arrows into the lead on the twenty seventh lap, and um, he was he was leading. He was he was doing a really really good job. Um, everything looked serene. He looked like he was about to, you know break arrows as duck to two races in and then his engine blew on the 64th lap and and that was it um 
that he could have done in race number two. And uh, Arrows was, what, 382 races into Formula One without ever winning. That's a massive misfortune. Um, did get a podium that year with second behind uh, Nicky Lauder and Storp with uh, the fan car presumably chucking well, and, lots and, of stones and, into his and, face. I did have the pleasure of talking to Tony Southgate about that and he describes it as the first legal car home. Yes. Uh, I don't think he was very impressed with the uh, <laughs> with the Gordon Murray fan car. But yeah, I mean, it, and Patrese did hold off Ronnie Peterson in the ground effects uh, Lotus to get that second place as well. Um, so that's perhaps one that's forgotten because obviously it was more than... Everyone remembers the fan car from that race. But yeah, it was it was probably one of Ricardo's better days, uh, yeah. certainly earlier on in his career. Certainly, and then it's funny that he says legal cars, but uh, <laughs> yes, yes, quite quite ironic given the uh, the shadow arrow situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I think I think it was like sixty percent of the car they found was a carbon copy. I think something uh, like that. Well, I I think at the, the time court. wasn't the argument that he thought he had the. I mean, you've done the research, but I think he thought that he owned the yeah. RP. So he's like, brilliant, I can just uh, save myself a job here, tidy it up a little bit, bosh. And he went, well, no, because you, you designed it while you were an employee of, or under contract, whatever it was. Yeah, that's... Uh, and they did they did lose, but I think he knew he was going to lose anyway, because yeah, they... he had another car ready pretty soon. Yeah, so they produced the A1, um, Patrese... Uh, got a, got a fourth place with that. That um, that was after being banned for a race um, because uh, he was banned. He was banned from Watkins Glen because he was blamed for um, the accident at Monza that took the life of uh, Ronnie Peterson. Uh, James Hunt was, um, let's say, in future years, was uh, very keen to stress that fact. Uh, you know, obviously, Patrese denies that, um, but you know, he came back, finished fourth. And uh, returned for 1979, only scored two points in the A1, and then the A2 came out and he didn't get on with it at all. A3 was a lot more conventional for, for 1980. Uh, Patrese got on with it a lot better, uh, took a podium with uh, took a podium at Long Beach. And then 81, Long Beach again, another near miss. Patrese took pole, led the first 24 laps, and then his engine started misfiring. He was having all sorts of fuel pickup issues. Carlos Reusman took the lead, and then Patrese sort of, his race properly petered out when he was coming in and out of the pits to try and fix the problems, and eventually, you know, Arrows withdrew the car. And, and that was that was kind of it. Um, Patrese took third in Brazil in uh, that year, um, second at Imola, and then... The season was quite front-loaded. Uh, car dropped off the pace, and that was his, that was his last year. And he went off to to Brabham and uh, took it, finally took his first F1 win in that year's very very infamous Mon- uh, Monaco Grand Prix. So, I think for me, it's an absolute slam dunk here. Um, you know, you look at all of the Arrows drivers and you look at their careers, and sure, Patrese probably had on balance the best car relative to the opposition um, in, in those opening years. But the fact that he was able to come in as a rookie and do all of those things and nearly win for Arrows, I think, yeah, it's it, it's it's pretty ominous. Yeah, I think completely agree. It's uh, he, he ticks all the boxes and he's, he's got the impact as the first driver. He has more near misses than anyone else. I mean, I think the Hungarian Grand Prix in, in 97 is the most famous one. But I think, as you've just listed... Pedrosi had more near misses for Arrows. You know, he's got the longevity, scored more points than anyone else. Um, 
yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it's funny how a number of these lists there is an there is an easy number one. Almost all of them have an easy number one. It's difficult the other placings, but I think um, I think Pachez is a yeah a, 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 yeah a pretty concrete number one on this one. Sorry to not disagree, Alex. No, you, you you messed it up right at the end there. Obviously, you were hoping for some some histrionics, some tears, tantrums, but uh, no, it's nice to end on a positive note. And in fact, we shall do just that. That's our podcast for today. We'll be back soon with another uh, top ten drivers list. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Autosport Podcast. Mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun with over eighty casino style games to choose from. You too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering professional-grade industrial supplies, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to answer your toughest questions. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.